BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. We did a special episode of Dedicated this time with Jack Carr. If you want to see the entire conversation on video, Jack and I are in a really cool studio inside SiriusXM. So if you want to see it on video, Jack and I drinking some whiskey and figuring everything out, you can go get the SiriusXM app. Go download the app from your app store, and that is the only place the video is actually available. You can listen here on the podcast or get the full video on the SiriusXM app. Thanks. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with number one New York Times bestselling author, Jack Carr. His books featuring former Navy SEAL James Reese will have you white-knuckling the book in your hands. This is due not only to Jack's gifts as a writer, but because he is also a former Navy SEAL. His books feel authentic because they are. Jack joined the Navy in 1996 and spent 20 years in naval special warfare. He's led sniper teams and assault teams and counterinsurgency operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Philippines. His first book, Terminalist, was adapted for television by Amazon Prime and stars the very talented Chris Pratt. And Jack is now out with book six in the series, Only the Dead. Jack, welcome. It's great to be with you. Great to be hanging out here. I love this. This is a great, great spot. Oh, thanks very much. The special treatment for our number one bestsellers. Thank you. Thank you. I understand you got these nice cameras in here just for me today, so yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, the special episode. We're doing video today, which we don't always do. Oh. And uh, first of all, thank you for your service to the country. Oh, thank you. And thank you That's for nice. these great books. I've been thank following you. the book tour on social media, and you were having a... It looks like the most fun book tour of all time. You're having yeah. a blast. They, uh, they turned into more than signings, it seems like. Last one and this one uh, into more events. Yeah. Uh, so I did book tours for the first one, the second one, then COVID hit. And so there were two where there were just virtual tours. Yeah. Uh, the last one for In the Blood was the first one where I was back. And the crowds were fairly large. Uh, yeah. like out I was going to say, around very well-attended events. That sort of thing, yeah. And so this one, uh, same thing. It got uh, got even, the crowds got even larger. And so they felt more like 
not a signing and a, just a little talk and shaking some hands and that sort of a thing, but like an event. Yeah. It was just this amazing energy. And for me, I'm just so humbled by it all because uh, I love writing. I've loved reading and writing since I was a little kid. I knew that I wanted to be a SEAL from a very early age. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a writer and to be able to follow my passion. So mission is taking care of my family. My passion is writing to put those together and have a purpose going forward in life. Um, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I'm just so humbled that so many people show up and that the character is resonating with yeah. them enough yeah. to turn these signings into into events and everybody's having a great time that's amazing well we'll keep the fun rolling in here nice you told me to pick the Look whiskey so i've got nictor's rye here nice. it's my favorite rye wonderful so we'll get that Wonderful. started. Yeah, we were just talking about rye. You asked me my favorite thus far. I really like that uh, Rendezvous Rye from High West. It's uh, local in Park City where we're, we're from. Um, but that's been my favorite for uh, not a few years now. But uh, I actually have a whiskey. With ice? Do you do it I'll with, do with ice? ice. Yeah, one ice okay. would, be, would be fantastic. Um, but I have a whiskey from Hooten Young now. Yeah, I, I got to hear and, more uh, about your own brand yeah, of whiskey. Yeah, yeah. So Norm Hooten is a Delta Force operator. People might remember him from Black Hawk Down. He was played by the actor Eric Bana. And uh, when he got out of uh, that unit, he... Oh, nice. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Cheers. Amazing. Great to meet you. you. Great to meet you. Man, that's amazing. Texas drinking team. Nice. Yeah, these are some glasses we I picked like up it. along the way. <laughs> I like it. Uh, but he started a whiskey company and uh, has some really great whiskey, some great cigars as well. Yeah. And I put them in the show because I wanted to help support uh, veteran-owned companies. And so in the TV show with Chris Pratt, in mm -hmm. the first episode, he's drinking with a buddy at a base and on the bar is Hooten Young whiskey and mm -hmm. then later on for people paying attention i put it in the email address so in the show this email this email address and uh it's hooten young at proton mail because he needs to get in touch with the reporter mm -hmm. uh and for her that's when they met they he was drinking that hooten young so she'd know it was him so okay. for people that are really paying attention it's in there but now we have the uh collaboration the jack carr and hooten young collaboration on this whiskey and it's nice delicious. And can we find it on your website yeah uh, it is on the website and it's on the merch side of the house and because it's whiskey it takes you to some other Plays mm -hmm. all sorts of laws about uh, what you can, how you can sell that sort of yeah, thing. So yeah. it goes to a third party site for the specific, um, to make the specific purchase. But yeah, it's out there and it's, uh, it's uh, delicious. Well, that's the next whiskey. It's going to fuel. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm going <laughs> to send you guys a bottle. All right, I'm in. So I, I read you were raised in Northern California and that your mom was a librarian, yeah. which makes you the second writer in a row. With that background, really? Joe, Joe Nesbo was in last week. Oh, His mother was a librarian. This must be that. like the secret sauce for becoming a number one bestseller. Well, it doesn't hurt, especially <laughs> if um, they make it. Been, but both my parents really made reading a natural part of our life. It wasn't something mm -hmm. that was forced on us. It was just something that was done, just like sitting down for dinner or whatever else. Um, but th that instilled a natural love of reading. Um, I think of uh, also history because there's so much yeah. history woven into to stories, both non and, and fictional. Um, um, so I just had that from a very early age. I guess that was in my blood, as was service. My uh, grandfather was killed in World War II uh, mm -hmm. near the end of the war in May of 1945, and he was a Corsair pilot. So those are the planes that had the wings that would fold up like that so you could fit them mm -hmm. on aircraft carriers. Yeah. And back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a show on TV called Black Sheep Squadron starring Robert Conrad as Pappy Boynton, who is a Medal of Honor recipient from World War II who flew that same aircraft as my grandfather. So my dad, without Facebook and those sorts of things, you couldn't yeah. really connect to people who, let's say, had been in 
in your father's squadron. You couldn't really track them down to find out a little bit more about your father or anything mm -hmm. like that. So our connection with that generation was really through popular culture, meaning that show, World War, other World War II movies. Yeah. Um, so I knew that I was going to serve from a very early age. And then I found out about Seals when I was age seven. Yeah. And I started reading these thrillers by authors like Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and yeah. AJ Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter and Louis L'Amour. And a lot of those in the 80s anyway and early 90s, a lot of those authors had protagonists, main characters in their stories who had backgrounds that I wanted in real life. Yeah. one day. So yeah. they were either a Marine sniper in Vietnam, they were a CIA paramilitary guy, a Navy SEAL, Army Special Forces. So I figured like Nelson DeMille and David Morrell, they must have done their research into these characters. So yeah. as I'm reading these things in 6th, 7th, 8th grade. Did Morrell serve? I know Nelson served. Yeah, Nelson DeMille was in the, in Vietnam uh, in the infantry, and I had him on my podcast recently. Yeah. And I don't think too many people have asked him about his military service. We did, he came before. on here. We talked a bit oh, about you? it. Yeah, And it was, uh, he's he's great. He's, I love that guy. He's like a legend. Um, he was like the and, godfather. Yeah, Right around yeah. here, also. So he I has... wanted to ask you about your early years. So one thing I I read again, your website is one of the best oh, out there. You. Anyone should check that out, especially other writers, to see one thank that's you. done well as thank an example. You. But I read that you did have these two certainties early in life: one that you would be a writer, and the other that you would serve in the military. And it, it's amazing, you know, our our son is like, I'm going to be a fireman. And we're like, yeah. well, that's great. You know, you're six, so we'll see how that works out. Right. But you actually did it like in spectacular fashion. Thank you. And it's very similar to that. It's very similar to saying you want to be a police officer or a firefighter or an astronaut when you're five, six, seven, eight years old and just never giving up on that dream. Because I think along the way, no matter what you want to do, if you feel this calling early in life, whether it's to service or whatever it might be, that along the way, people, for whatever reason, especially if it's something that's difficult to do or be successful in or whatever it might be, they can discourage you with just a look even. It doesn't have to yeah. be words. Mm -hmm. You can see someone who looks at you when you say you want to be a Navy SEAL and they say, oh, well, he'll grow out of that. Or do you know how hard that is? <laughs> right. you, have you watched right. the Discovery Channel show and seen how tough that is? What's your backup plan? Yeah. Like that sort of thing. Very similar to the same kind of looks that you get when you tell someone you want to be a number one New York Times bestselling author. And you don't frame mm -hmm. it like that, but just saying you want to be an author uh, and you want to write one day and all, all that sort of thing. They look at you with the same kind of an eye that tells you that they... Like good to be exactly, dreaming, but you know, let's get real exactly at some point. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. But for me, I just never let go of either of those dreams. And I did things from a very early age that would allow me to build upon Did it ever foundation. even waver? Were you ever in high school thinking, you know, maybe I'll be selling insurance at some point, but... Nope. No, Never. you just knew. Eyes on the prize and went yeah. for it the whole way on both things. Exactly. And it was so natural. So it was a calling, and mm -hmm. then I listened to that calling. Yeah. Um, and then on the writing side of the house, reading all those authors that I just mentioned during those very formative years, uh, I read it without, let's say, some of the filters that might be skeptical slash a little bit cynical, perhaps, uh, that might build up over time. So if you were to read those same books at, say, age 40, because you said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to be a writer. What should I have been reading in my genre? What's the history of my yeah. genre? What should yeah. I go back and read now? Well, you're reading them through a different eye. And I'm reading those at age 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever it was, and continues to today. But back then, I didn't have any of those filters because I'm just an 11-year-old mm -hmm. kid who's just dreaming. So I'm lost yeah. in the magic of these pages, and I've never forgotten that. So back then, yeah. I thought, one day I will write the same kind of novels that I'm reading right here. And it also helps to have that foundation uh, that isn't more Machiavellian, like, oh, how, I, what should I read and who should I copy and that sort of thing. Right. You're just enjoying it. I'm just enjoying it yeah. for the yeah. love. I, and I love the, the names story. that you mentioned because I had phases of pretty much every writer you've mentioned. Nice. Like Ludlum, I had years oh, yeah. where I just read anything I could get yeah. my hands on by, by Ludlum. I wanted to ask you, it seems like you're always reading, including when you're deployed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you're deployed reading Ludlum or DeMille or Lee Child or, or whatever. And I, I wanted to know if you could give us a sense of 
and I'm sure it varies deployment to deployment, mm-hmm. the, the living situation and, yep. you know, you have downtime before it's like actually go mm-hmm. time. But can you give us a sense of like a, some days in deployment? Yeah, so there, there, there's some days that are the same as others, and uh, and there's not much action, and you're building up a target package very similar to how I envision maybe the the FBI or a joint task force or a police department would build up, let's say, a crime family. Uh, who's attached to who? Who's uh, related by uh, by blood, by the marriage, whatever else? And you mm-hmm. build out this family connected, like in the old TV shows, like by a piece of yarn or a string. This you happens know, going, when you're actually in country somewhere? You're doing something very similar. Um, and uh, you're developing this target package on a certain individual or a, uh, a network of individuals, maybe that are bringing EFPs, uh, so mm-hmm. an IED over from Iran, over in to Iraq to target U.S. forces. So you're targeting that rat line, you're targeting the facilitators, you're you're after the person who's actually emplacing it. Um, But those people who emplace it, there are a lot more of those people than, let's say, the person who can build it. Because once you take that builder out, then Mm -hmm. you have multiple people who can emplace it and put a switch in or just put it down and cover it up. So are you like like in a barracks and you're like, at one moment you're going through the research pack and then you're like, well, it's a little, you know, break time. I'm going to settle into Plum Island by DeMille now and, you know, uh, no, I mean, you have a different specialty. So everybody is part of this team, but someone is specialized in the mobility package. That means that all the trucks or whatever you're using have to be gassed up and ready to go at any given moment, and that's their their job. The point man, he's navigating to and from targets and, and that. So everybody has their specific thing that yeah. they're working on. But as a leader, you're working also with an intelligence cell that's building those packages. So each day can be a little different. And uh, oftentimes I'm reading nonfiction as well. But if I need an escape, uh, let's say on the flight over, or even while yeah. I was while I was down there. Where were you living during all this? Uh, like so in a house? Everyone is different, uh, but mostly for us, it was on these uh, these FOBs, these forward operating bases. So not a huge base, uh, but, but it's a U.S. military one. base somewhere. U.S. military base or a, a host nation force type of a of a base where there's a large U.S. presence and security mm-hmm. and that sort of a thing. But everybody probably had a different experience on deployment. But each one was a little different. Early on, we were living in the palaces that we just uh, taken from Saddam or his sons or whatever else. So you're living in these palaces, which sounds, when you say palace, people envision right. you know, something. But Gilded, and, yeah, but really, it's not that. Yeah, it's pretty gaudy, actually, <laughs> in your in the early days. I remember sleeping on a, on a pool table because we hadn't yet brought in the logistics chain of beds and all that sort of thing. So for a month or so, I think I slept on a pool table in one of Saddam's uh, palaces uh, until you could get like the water going and the, the, the air conditioning. I didn't have air conditioning, but let's say, yeah, water, electricity, that sort of thing. Bring in the generators, bring in all the stuff that our military is so good at, which yeah. is essentially building a mini city somewhere in the world that doesn't have all these resources and utilities. Yeah. Um, so everyone was a little different. Whether it was a palace uh, in Ramadi, it was just a tent essentially mm-hmm. on a fob. So oftentimes uh, the enemy would lob mortars over the walls or RPGs over the walls, and your only protection really is maybe some sandbags outside and you know this little canvas general-purpose medium tent that you're yeah. living in. Uh, so each one was a little was a wow. little different. But I'm just least... noticing your mic's getting a little Oop. low. I might Let's do it. Lower. I just want to make sure we don't lose you. I'm going to go righty tighty here and I'm going to move that. There we go. There we go. Good. Oh wow, you cranked that down. Look at that. <laughs> like I've been I, working I, I out. Gorilla gripped it. You have been working out. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's see. Let's do that again, but like up there. What are you? What are you doing? That's like perfect. That? Now, I, I don't want to like you know Bam. put it over your. Love it. Love your it. face. At first, I'm like, oh, he's so. He's like, I'm blocking my face. Like he really knows what he's doing. He's got it at the perfect level, and it was slowly <laughs> dropping and dropping. Yeah, there we go. I think um, really we're good. But uh, but yeah, each one is, uh, was a little different as far as living conditions. But on each one, I would always have my professional 
reading and yeah. then something if I needed an escape it wasn't video games for me it wasn't movies for me it was a book how about keeping a, a journal like knowing that you were going to be a writer did you keep a diary a journal of things or observations that you thought you know what I'm going to use this later in a book of my own no and uh, so many people told me along the way that uh, older people said hey I wish I'd taken I uh, kept a journal when I was young yeah. people hear that all the time um, and I always thought I was too busy for that um, so my escape was just reading a couple reading. a couple yeah. chapters in uh, in a book uh, but uh, but I always had professional reading and then I had my one little escape for whatever little amount of time it was just to dive into those but I wasn't taking notes on hey in the future this is gonna be right, what I write yeah. about. this would be a good thing to write about not at all Plus, they probably wouldn't let you leave country with it it'd be all this classified information that you're jotting <laughs> well, down you'd be would... surprised maybe we can General Petraeus about that, those uh, those journals and, and <laughs> notebooks. But I always did wonder about that. I'd see people taking notes in some books. I'm like, hmm, where's that going to end up one yeah, day? Yeah. You know, that's just how it goes. But I didn't I didn't do that. Um, it's like that Operation Mincemeat story that you probably know from World War II. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That got basically outed yeah. from British intelligence. And somebody wrote a novel who knew about it. Yeah, and yeah. they're like, the novel was so exact, they had to publish the there it is. true story. There it is. But uh, I thought of all the, the, the SEAL part of my life and then the writing part of my life, I thought they would be distinctly different. And when you're in the SEAL teams or in the military in general, or at least just from my, my perspective, that pendulum had to be on the side of the team because mm -hmm. that's what you owe the guys you're taking downrange. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the country, the mission, yeah. the team. And so every single waking second um, and probably every second I was sleeping as well was focused on being a better leader and a better operator than I was the day before. Uh, and that was the sole focus to be so I didn't. I wanted to make sure that I left nothing on the table, so that when I was downrange and I'm making decisions under fire, um, and if something went sideways, I wouldn't regret not having put the time in earlier. So my wife knew that that yeah. pendulum is on the side of the team, and for for us, she understood that. So I got very fortunate in that respect, and that's just how it has to be, I think, in special operations. Yeah. Or it, it just has not, to be not that to way. draw an equivalency between that and sports, but I feel like. That is Tom Brady's advantage because mm. he's he's the most prepared guy. He's not the most talented. He's not the most athletic. But nobody's out preparing that guy. Yeah. And so when the chips are down, it's not like he plays better. It's that he's still relaxed. He's like, I've done everything I can do. I'm prepared. Done Everyone else plays worse, and he just plays the same. Yeah. You know, and... It's done that absolutely everything. So from putting time in on the range and in field training exercises and all all these things and studying the enemy, studying that nonfiction, studying yeah. warfare, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, terrorism, um, and then building on the experiences you've had in the past, studying what's coming back from downrange because the enemy's always adapting to us. We're always adapting to the enemy and typically who does it faster is going to end up uh, victorious on the battlefield. So for mm -hmm. me, having all of that, all those inputs, studying those things, having that be my sole focus uh, was because I wanted to be that that leader downrange and that operator yeah. downrange that was as prepared as I could possibly be. But now, as an author, that foundation has really informed my writing, both the academic study of warfare mm -hmm. and those experiences on the battlefield. Not so much that I'm like, okay, when I was on this corner of the vehicle and I take this angle, like, and that, not like that at all, but more the feelings and emotions attached to these different events. So yeah. if my protagonist is uh, ambushed in Los Angeles, California, as part of a completely fictional narrative, I go back and remember what it was like to be ambushed in Baghdad in 2006, and I yeah. take those feelings and emotions and I apply them to this yeah. fictional narrative. So when people read these books, they think, oh, wow, this, sound, this feels real. I actually want to ask you about that. It comes from a real place. So, so, so viewers know, I don't know which camera I should be looking at, but so viewers know, I'll look at all cameras because I want to talk directly to the audience. If you have not read Jack Carr, it's amazing stuff. And I want to read a couple lines from the preface of Only the Dead because it's essentially a letter to your readers, a personal letter to your readers. And there are just a couple lines in here that I 
want to read because they're powerful. Uh, Jack writes, I don't interview snipers, ask them what it was like to press the trigger in combat, and then try to describe it on the page. Nor do I talk with operators who were once trapped in an ambush in Baghdad in an attempt to pull from them how they felt and reacted in the moment. Rather, I remember. And I wanted to ask you that, because I, I always do a segment on process, and I think that letter to your reader speaks a little bit to process, and that is so good. And for me and millions of readers like me who want to feel something authentic in the books, it is great. But I also wonder if it's hard on you, because this is not exactly like reminiscing over Christmas mornings. You're, right. you're dredging through the most traumatic, awful memories that anyone could have, and you have to do that on a daily basis as part of your work writing mm -hmm. every day. Is it hard for you? You know, I didn't think of it in, uh, in the lead up to writing that first book. I thought I'll get the sniper stuff right. If I don't know something about an aircraft or a weapon system, I know who to call or I know who to call who can put me in touch with a pilot or something like that. So I'll get that stuff right. The technical stuff I'll get right. Mm -hmm. um, and even through when I came up with a title and I came up with a theme, my one page executive summary, my outline still didn't think about how personal it was going to be. And then when I wrote the first sentence, very quickly, it was obvious that this is going to be a much more personal writing experience than I anticipated in the lead up to writing that first sentence. And it's remained that way with all the books to date. Um, but it's not hard because it's uh, one, I got very fortunate downrange and things uh, for whatever reason things can go sideways even if you do all the quote-unquote right things and make mm -hmm. all the right decisions the enemy still gets a vote and things can go sideways in a heartbeat and you can think about that for the rest of your life uh, just like if you stumble into something and make all the wrong decisions if you were in a nice air-conditioned space and working through something as far as like a uh, a, a game or a, a sand table and you're working through lessons from the battlefield or whatever else and testing let's say students on what you would do in this certain situation you could do all the right things downrange or all the wrong things and it could go right. And it could work, yeah. 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 And so you just don't know. So whatever reason, I feel very fortunate um, that the decisions I made under fire happened to, to work out. Thank goodness. Um, but, uh, but it's still very but on a daily basis. You know, you get in there to write, I don't know if you write for a few hours or you write a few thousand words or whatever it is, when mm -hmm. you get in there in the mornings or afternoons, well, I, I have some process questions yes, I want to yes, ask we'll you, do but it. Yeah. when you do it, is it like, Oh, I've got to like dredge through that stuff again. And Nope. Nope. Um, I feel so fortunate to, um, to be on this side of it and to have done what I wanted to do as a kid and being afforded that opportunity yeah. and to have made it through buds and to be in this position when uh, we were called to go to war uh, after September 11th. I mean, we were, I still had one deployment before September 11th. And then after September 11th, I was, I was in Guam. I was in my second week of my second deployment. And then it was just go from yeah. them. So uh, to be in that place when the country called, uh, I felt like it was an honor to be in that yeah. position um, and have to have prepared the way I did and then to continue to prepare and build on that foundation throughout my entire time in the military. But a lot of those things that I think about also aren't just related to pressing the trigger as a sniper or being in an ambush or uh, driving up to, let's say, a house or a compound to make that hit or whatever it, whatever it might be. Some of it's like coming home and what it's like to come home to a family you haven't seen mm. in six months. So in that first book, I describe uh, my protagonist, James Reese, coming home, and he's thinking about it because he's, he's on his way home, so he's thinking about a previous homecoming. And I went back to one of these homecomings and remember seeing my wife and daughter waiting up for me on oh. the couch. And I got home at like, kind of later at night and she was uh, staying up late just to wait for me. And, and I could see them through the, through the stained glass window. And uh, so I went back to that and I incorporated that into the novel, yeah. what it felt like to walk up. You were just mentioned before we door. got started. Your daughter is seventeen, I think. Yeah. Right. So, yep. and what year did you leave the service? Uh, Twenty sixteen. Oh, so yeah. she was she was actually uh, 
10, I guess. Yep, right? yep, exactly. Yeah, so okay. uh, so she had, uh, of all my deployments, I think she was uh, alive for three. Our second one was two, and our youngest was around for one. So mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't remember uh, too much of that of that life. But uh, but she does, and she remembers me yeah. leaving and coming home. And uh, you know, it was impactful to her, and I think it kind of made her um, a very more, uh, more studious in a way, more appreciative, uh, I think, of other other families that uh, have made the ultimate sacrifice, and mm-hmm. she feel, I think she feels lucky that that I came home. And then we got to do some amazing things over the last two years with the Best Defense Foundation, and we got to go back to Pearl Harbor for the 80th anniversary commemoration events mm-hmm. and bring veterans of World War II back to Pearl Harbor. And she's the youngest person they ever allowed to do it because uh, it's Donnie Edwards Foundation who played in the NFL, an amazing guy, mm-hmm. and he started this foundation because his grandfather was on Pearl Harbor, and we went back there. And so she's sitting at table having dinner with these guys and they're telling her these stories and she's not on a phone she is sitting there and she feels this uh, this connection with that generation yeah. because of that and it was life-changing and then we went up to Normandy last at this time last year we're going to and, Normandy uh, in a couple oh, weeks amazing if you go to Normandy in June every American should go there I've never seen more American flags uh, anywhere in this to include I can't in this wait. Country we need to do more of this for our Norm- kids yeah. so we're going to Normandy in June amazing. and I actually just learned that this will be the first year where it's obviously those veterans are getting older. This is the first year there won't be an American veteran at Normandy who was a you know, oh, member of the... Yeah. Ooh, I don't know if that's... We'll have to, I'm going to check on that um, because my daughter was on the beach, um, on Omaha Beach, with somebody who was 101, and she's standing there with him. He's in this old Jeep. They have all these old military vehicles over there. All, yeah. the, all the people from Normandy are all dressed up in American military uniforms. Yeah. And um, anyway, we're on a beach. He's sitting in this Jeep. She's standing next to him, and he's describing what it was like to be oh, the first person off of his landing craft. And he's telling her the tide was much farther out, and there were machine gun positions up there. And she's hearing this from him uh, and it was just life changing and she's there helping these guys in and out of their wheelchairs getting them to all their the dinners mm-hmm. and all the events and to their rooms making sure they're taking their medication I hope and I'm it was wrong just life changing I hope someone gave me, I, I think people are still alive but I, I did hear a rumor that maybe no one's able to make it or something. too much for oh, too much longer yeah exactly. but these stories from these guys absolutely a guy who just passed away recently actually I dedicate this book to Tom Rice who was the first person in his stick which means yes, yes. the first person out the door uh, over over Normandy on D-Day yeah. uh, he passed away this last November and so we went out to his memorial service in Coronado California where I was in the in the SEAL team so we went uh, went out there uh, and did that so I dedicate the book to him but there's another guy Jack Holder and she, my daughter is in Hawaii and she's hearing this story and he's a mechanic of a PBY, which is a, a float plane that would drop up these torpedoes. And uh, he watches these planes come over these mountains and he's on Ford Island and he watches them drop down and it's a Japanese aircraft and they strafe the runway and he takes us to the ditch that mm-hmm. he jumped into, which was a sewage ditch back then. Now it's just, just empty. And then uh, he jumps up and he ran. There's still the bullet holes in the ground and they kept the bullet holes in the hangar. And mm-hmm. he shows us where he ran to the edge of the water after that. And they watched the plane's bank drop and drop the first torpedoes on on Pearl Harbor and so my daughter got to hear this from him and then he became a pilot and he helped sink a Japanese aircraft carrier in the Pacific sunk a Japanese uh, submarine and then they sent him to the Mediterranean and he sunk a German submarine Wow incredible yeah. and he started talking about this so about 10 years ago and then he recently passed away as well mm-hmm. but she got to hear those stories from him before he passed away it was just incredible we got to capture that before that generation's gone yeah. all right a couple more uh, quick Process questions, yes, process. sort of like the mechanical stuff, because yes. people want to hear how a, a Navy SEAL in particular does it. 
All right, so are you writing outlines for these books ahead of time, yeah. or do you dive in and figure it out? I like to know where I'm going. So uh, all the books thus far have had the same process, and I didn't get it from anywhere. It just felt natural to me to do it this way. The only difference being for the first book, I had six, seven, eight, nine different one-page executive summaries. Mm -hmm. Some of those have become the next novels, but I've spread all those on the table for the first one, and then I chose the one that I thought would be the most visceral, the most primal, the most hard-hitting out of the gate, and the most likely to be noticed by a New York publishing house. Um, <laughs> so it was very, I wanted to start with Savage Son, which is my third novel. Yeah. And that's because I read Most Dangerous Game back in sixth grade. Oh, it's yeah. a short story by that's Richard true. Connell written I'm in amazing. the 1920s. Yeah. And I told myself when I was 11 back in sixth grade that one day I'd write a thriller that paid tribute to by that way, short the first story. short story like, kind of scared me as a kid. I'm like, oh my God, this awesome. is like kind of grisly. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And even back then, I'm like, who should play the, who should play the antagonist and protagonist yeah. in this? And I remember thinking about that back in the day. Um, and uh, I've never talked about this before, but I thought back then, sixth grade, so uh, I thought Harrison Ford would be amazing and then Raul Julia as the oh, bad guy from back in Tequila the day Sunrise if you're like, back great. in there yeah, like yeah. back in like 1985 time frame 86 time frame right. and he was, I thought he was presumed innocent too Raul it, Julia yeah, right he was, he, was Sandy. he was with Harrison Ford also with Harrison years Ford later. Exactly. this is a great yeah. book by Scott Turow yeah. um, just incredible it's on my reading list I put together a bunch of reading lists that are on my on my website books that impacted me that was nice. that was one but uh, but process wise the first one had all those different ones written down, chose Terminalist, uh, and I knew the characters weren't developed enough to explore the themes of Savage Son, the one that paid tribute to mm -hmm. the most dangerous game, um, because uh, they needed to go on this, they needed to be introduced to readers first, and then needed to go on this journey. And even at the end of the first book, I thought, uh, not quite ready yet. I needed to take my character on a journey of violent redemption, got mm -hmm. to the end of that second book, True Believer, and then I was ready to write Savage Son to explore the yeah. dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. So, uh, but I wanted to start with Savage Son, but That's I decided great. To start with, I, do, I have a question on that, and they sort of the evolving. So, so listeners know, viewers know. Uh, James Reese is an evolve. It's not like lather, rinse, repeat with okay. with James Reese. It's uh, an evolving character, yeah. and, and each new book develops a new aspect of his character. But yeah. we'll, we'll come back to that. So, on the process, though, do you write oh, yeah, in the morning? I didn't ask evenings? your question, did I? Uh, <laughs> process wise, I come up with. Uh, I like the title because I don't like to have any bandwidth taken up with. Oh, I've had good titles so far. What if I don't think of a good one this time? So yeah. I have a title right away. I have a theme that guides the writing process. That yeah. can be a word or two or a sentence or two, um, and then I write this one-page executive summary, and mm -hmm. then I read it and I ask myself, "Is this worth the next year and a half of my life?" And if the answer is yes, then I read it again and I say, "If someone was walking through the airport and was to grab this off the shelf." at a Hudson News and read the synopsis, would they be willing to invest time they're never going to get back into this story? And if the answer to that is yes or probably, then that's my story. That's that's the one I'm going with. And I take that, turn that into the outline, and then I turn that outline into the narrative. Oh, that's but interesting. on the yeah. outline side, I sort of like write the flap jacket first. Exactly. Like, that's, that's exactly. Really, that's cool. and, uh, and that theme guides me so that uh, it keeps me on track. So everything has to tie back into that theme, whether it's directly mm -hmm. or more importantly, indirectly back to that theme and that really keeps things on track and I think that's the reason there are very few content edits from Simon & Schuster. Uh, the ones I get are, hey, maybe describe this person a little more for people who haven't read uh, the previous novels or, hey, describe this a little more for somebody who wasn't in the military. Yeah. Like, uh, But there's no big content edit type of swings and I think that's because I have thought through that theme and it's right there. I put it on a yellow sticky and it's right there on my yeah. computer yeah. as I'm writing away. And this computer, I have one computer for each book. I get a new computer every time. That 
It's not for any business stuff. It's only for the writing, uh, mm-hmm. which might not be the most cost-effective way to do things, <laughs> but I find it to be very helpful to have to just kind of clear the plate, and now I'm working on this next yeah. novel. So, yeah. uh, But on the outline side of the house, as far as process goes, I don't get stuck if I can't figure something out in that outline. I don't spend a week trying to figure this out or saying, oh, the reader's never going to go along with me on this, or uh, how's he ever going to get out of this situation? Nope, I just put a bunch of X's there, mm-hmm. knowing that I have a year to figure this out. Right. And I'm not on the battlefield. I'm still solving problems. I'm still aggressively and creatively solving problems on the page the way I used to on the battlefield, but I have more time now. And if I mess it up, I can sleep on it. I can come back. I can edit. I can make it something that's okay, great, or as good as I can get it. Uh, and no one's going to go home in a body bag. The yeah. consequences of messing up are a lot less dire. So I like having that outline and even knowing that <laughs> parts so need to be filled like, in. You, you know, the stakes have been higher for you in the past. You know, yeah. these are, these are, you know, we can fix all this. Yeah. Having the ability to edit is a is a nice thing. It's very nice. It's very yeah. nice to go back. And uh, I got some advice early on from Brad Thor, actually, and he told me, uh, and he got it from somebody who was an author in the 70s, and they said, give yourself permission to write a bad chapter. And yeah. I took that as give myself permission to write a bad sentence, a bad chapter, a bad book, get it done, and then go back and make it great. Go back and yeah. make it as good as you can possibly make it. And that was very liberating to hear that. Um, but that's been the process for all the books thus far. And if I can ever refine it, I will. But so far, that seems to be working for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know where I'm going. I know how the end of the end. Um, and there's some things in the middle that I'm not quite so sure about, but I know I'll figure that out yeah. over the course of the next year. So I love every part of the process. I love the editing apart. I love, I love all of yeah. it. And yeah. uh, to include figuring out the covers and, and everything else that goes along, I just enjoy every part of this. You're always very gracious. I, I just noted there that you, uh, you're you always very gracious to the folks who have influenced you from years beyond and the people who have mm-hmm. sort of been part of your writing process like brad thor a mutual pal of ours and i noticed you guys were at thriller Thriller fest Fest, just did an event together which is great it's fantastic. I was um, a spotlight guest, and and uh, we had a great time on stage. And people came up to us after and said they'd never felt energy like that at a conference yeah. before. So it was really cool. He's to great. Hear that. He's a great talker too. He I, is. You have your own podcast, which yep. is killing it. And Brad Thor is a great. Like he's always mm-hmm. on TV doing stuff too. Yep. He's really, yep. really great. Um, and Thriller Fest for people who are listening who don't know is a a big literary festival for thriller writers. The best mm-hmm. of the best go there, and it's in New York City here where we are. And by the way, I love that we're both at the Simon and Schuster, which is across the street from where right we're sitting. Right now here at yep. Sirius XM. Yeah, I so got to you... sit with Michael Connolly at the uh, the banquet. So it was. Oh, that's uh, cool. It was me, Michael Connolly, uh, R.L. Stein. Oh my goosebumps. gosh, he sold more uh, books and, than Stephen King, yeah, according and, to his Goosebumps movie. And, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, and Walter Mosley. So that was the table. It was just incredible. Wow. And uh, so I got to sit next to Michael Connolly and talk to him, and that was just. Uh, I mean, it was such an honor for me to get to to talk to him, and uh, and yeah. So now we're now we're connected, and what an amazing guy. Now that's very cool. I mean, he's been around for a while, but I mean, he might be actually selling more books than he is now. But whatever. <laughs> working um, on it. I'm working there. I'm trying to. <laughs> Love Michael Connolly, though. So do you write in the mornings, evenings? It's been the evening. Well, I try any time that I can because we have three kids, uh, wife, dog, you know, all those things that happen when you have a 17-year-old, yeah. 15-year-old, and a 12-year-old, a shot out of the cannon every morning. I uh, try, where's your backpack? You know, all yeah, parents yeah. understand. <laughs> you know, Is it a violin day? Where's your violin? I, you know, that sort of a thing. So all those normal things. Uh, and then I get back from that. And I really started, I didn't realize how much of an entrepreneurial type of adventure this would be until maybe a month or two before my first book came out. I thought you could just, and part of the appeal 
appeal of writing to me as a kid was that I could live in a cabin in right, the mountains alone time. and I could write. Yeah, yeah I like to hang out with your imaginary friends exactly. and write. And I could write. I could send it to New York. I thought maybe you do yeah. one interview and you start the next book. And then I looked. Then I started looking at uh, the space like I would the battlefield. Yeah. Uh, look at how 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 are you adapting to this changing environment now yeah. that it's not just a publishing house. Now there's all sorts of now there's audio and there's ebook and there's po- uh, there's podcasts and there's uh, social media and there's all these other ways to engage with a readership and an audience that weren't there for authors in 1975, 85, 95, even 2005. Things are evolving. These yeah. are constantly evolving. So I looked at the space and thought, okay, uh, I guess I'm going to need to adapt to this space, which means I need a social media presence. Okay, I need to add value to people's lives throughout the year in a way that's authentic and real to me that I'm going to love doing uh, and is going to connect me with that audience because I can mm-hmm. today and you couldn't do that in 1985. So, uh, so hence all the social media platforms, hence the podcast, hence the reading list, hence the merch and all those things, yeah. um, that all have to be at the same quality as the book. The per- the product has to be the best it can possibly be. And I thought back to what if I was making a computer in 1977 in my garage, I can have the best computer possible, but I have to let people know that it's there. Yeah. And how do you do that in a way that's appropriate and adds value to their lives as yeah. well? So, uh, so then I kind of switch gears. Well, listening and, to you, it's, it's no surprise you have an amazing website and a huge yeah. source, but you also have the benefit of being like a charismatic guy who's oh, a, yeah. who's a great talker and you know, so you can oh. sort of hit all the... Yeah, all I, the, I, mean, all the always, I think I had it. to learn to be more extroverted uh, just uh, in the SEAL teams in order to essentially to be heard. Yeah, yeah, to lead and be heard. So that was kind of a learned thing. I think I'm much Were more comfortable. Were you not an outgoing guy in high school? I was outgoing in that I was uh, you know, athletic and all those. But I also like to be alone and read. Yeah. And I loved being with those books. Uh, and so I, that was probably my favorite thing to do. Yeah. But I also knew I was going to be a SEAL. And so I was watching these videos that you could get from the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine back in the day, probably on Betamax or I think still in a box in my mom's attic. And I saw these guys running the obstacle course. And then they had some little clips from Vietnam in there of people just mowing down the jungle with a stoner machine gun. And uh, I thought, well, this person's climbing this uh, cargo net. What can I do in my backyard that's kind of going to simulate that? I put up ropes or try to do pull-ups with different hand grips and sprint our hill and that sort of a thing. So I was always trying to do something to prepare myself for my future profession, yeah. um, but uh, but I think I'm much more comfortable by myself. But I, I got, you know, it's funny you, know, you say that because I have always been an introvert, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it takes energy for me to like get out and do. Pub- I have to go take a nap after we after we do this. It's like you know, it's yeah. it's not my natural state. Yeah. I'm, I'm much more introverted. But when you get it for me, it wasn't military. I was in business, and you have to do a lot of public speaking and. You work on it. It takes pride. It's like a muscle. You've just got to do it and do yeah, it and do it. Yeah, you just got to do it. And today, uh, you know, I, I, I'm never, I'm never going to be the most smooth talker. It's just not me. It's just <laughs> how I do it is how I do it. And that's just how it how it goes. But, um, you know, it, I don't like the public speaking either. And yeah. I don't consider, I, I think we're having a conversation. I never think about yeah. Well, the bourbon helps, people. right? I the mean, bourbon, in fact, I might need a little more rye. I'm going to top up a little. The bourbon definitely helps. But I don't like, I get asked to do public speaking quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and I always say no now because I just don't like going on stage and doing yeah. that sort of thing. It's not not comfortable for me to go. I know there. people who draw energy from. They're like, "Get yeah. me out there, let me at them," and I'm yeah. like, "Oh my god!" It's like I, no. I need to. You know, I like to have I, a conversation. So we yeah. I, I did the Reagan Library last year, but it was an in conversation with. So I sit down on the yeah. stage and I do that. That's always so much easier. So much better more fun. for me. It's more interesting for like, the audience too. Nobody I think wants so. to and see take questions. Like in the yeah. book tour, I love. Yeah. I give a little intro. Usually, just talk a little bit about the book, set the stage without giving too much away, and maybe give a little update on the show or the Amazon series, yeah. that sort of a thing, and then take questions because then I know that at least one person out there is interested in what I have to say. So I yeah. like to take as many questions as possible. And that's, that's fun for me. Yeah. I like doing that. All right. So 
Do you write in the morning? Wait, do we ask that? Did I ask you if you write in the mornings or the evenings? <laughs> you did, and I did not answer. Uh, <laughs> later, <laughs> I get so excited talking about reading and writing. I'm enjoying um, our conversation. But, this is definitely <laughs> easier than giving a speech. Uh, it is, definitely. But uh, <laughs> I write late at night because typically once everybody's in bed, like that's quiet. I'm not interrupted. And East Coast is still asleep or has gone to sleep. West Coast yeah. is going to sleep. And so if you're in the middle of the country... East Coast gets you early, West Coast gets you late, and you're just kind of between the two if you're replying to emails and texts and, and all the rest of it. But um, typically it has been late at night because that's when I'm not interrupted. Yeah. But what I do is I have a separate room now that I write in. The computer that's just business stays in the other room, phone stays yeah. in, in the other room. Uh, but if even if it's during the day, for whatever reason, I still think, oh, someone's trying to get me for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah. But at night, well, pretty soon you got, one off, you got one off to college. Pretty soon they'll all yeah. be off to college. You're yeah. like, I can write whenever I want. Exactly. I got it all day long. Exactly. And I did get left with Last book, I started renting Airbnbs in Park City, um, and that worked out great. I found this little cabin that I could still see our house at the time, uh, and so I could go out at night and shine my flashlight, and the kids oh could see God, me, and so I could funny. talk. So I did that for the last one, and that was that worked out great for the lot for In the Blood. And I thought I would do that this time, and yeah. then I got there. We rented the same place, and I got there, and it just didn't feel right for whatever reason. And I thought about you know all these interruptions that uh, I'm always thinking about when it comes to writing. I'm going to miss those yeah. in a few years, yeah. and so I'm going to embrace those, and it might push my deadline a little bit or maybe a lot but uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace those because I know I'll miss them eventually and yeah. uh, and so I did so I went back and to the house out. and it they worked were out respectful, I'm a lot more like tired some interruptions but not too many yeah you know you yeah. just got to take it you just got to I don't want my kids uh, memories of me to be like he was always telling me I'm writing or anything like that so if anybody ever interrupts me it's always uh, you know open arms and a hug and and that's just how it is right now because eventually I know they won't they won't yeah. be there how about coffee and or you know like a glass of wine or a glass yep. of whiskey would oh, you yeah. write in with any of those coffee in the morning bourbon at night uh you don't want to reverse those would you, you write after those, bourbon uh oh yeah i'll have a yeah. little, little bourbon there but it's not nice but oftentimes i don't have anything because i'm just going yeah and so there's not even time to sit there with a glass of wine or a bourbon or whatever how long, I well, I how long could a stretch of writing be closer to deadline it gets very long so all-nighters i uh, did three all-nighters for Is this that one like drafting like your new writing or editing? New, new writing. Uh, yeah, new writing. Editing. Yeah. Typically a little, a little, yeah, you don't, because it's done at that point. Now it's refinement. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's really in the creating because you don't know exactly how long it's going to go. Yeah. Even, and so this one was the sixth one. So I figured I had five uh, earlier examples and I figured oh, about 120,000 words will be this mm -hmm. one. Uh, no, I blew right past that. Blew by 125, 130, 135. So this one's 139,000 words. And uh, the longest to date, the most brutal to date, but I didn't know that going in and I never get to let's say 100,000 words and say time to start wrapping this up mm -hmm. and because people are trusting me with time they're never going to get back and that's something I take extremely seriously so uh, all my heart and soul goes into every single word and if it needs to be 139,000 if it needs to be 150,000 words that's what mm -hmm. it's going to be mm -hmm. um, and I don't know that exactly uh, going into it even with that outline even though I thought I had a, a good idea uh, it's just going to whatever the story needs By the is way, what it's going to get. I love that because I, I mean you and I grew up reading the same stuff like the Ludlam books were bigger and, the, and the early, mm -hmm. those DeMille's like Plum Island was yeah. bigger and now I feel like the norm is like this 80,000 and maybe 90 kind of thing and the, the plots aren't as complex your plots are complex there's stuff going on there are multiple characters happening and it just has that really rich thank you plot and that's that, because of those uh, guys that I miss from yeah. the, the era that we grew up on yeah and that's those guys i owe it all to them they gave me that foundation that they were my yeah. professors in the art of storytelling early on and uh and that's what i'm doing that's what i'm, I'm writing the things that i love to read yeah. uh but it's all due to those guys and what they put into their stories back then and you're right it did seem like those ones from back they in the day they get smaller we're a little it's like yeah, 80,000 that's little, all you get for 80, 30 bucks 000, yeah 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So same price. Hey, you get more for your money. Uh, but yeah, my stories right. are going to be as long or as short as it, as it, uh, right. as it takes it, to make it the needs. best story that it can yeah. possibly be. How about yeah. trusted early readers? Is there anyone yes. who, who reads first for you? Yeah. So I have four, four guys that uh, three of them are former attorneys. For whatever reason, I think attorneys some have this eye. For detail, yeah. um, but I send it off. I have four people that I send it to, and I acknowledge them all in the before uh, the your agent, before your publisher. Before, yep, yeah, really? before my before my agent, before my publisher. Uh, my agent wow. only sees it when it's totally done. Like there's no changes to be made, and I yeah. like that because my only my only vision uh, of an agent was what I saw on Californication with David Duchovny mm -hmm. and on Entourage. So that's what I thought <laughs> an agent was. Uh, not not with mine at all. I don't get yeah. any sort of uh, hey, you know what you should do this time is X, Y, or Z, or why don't you lay off on this, or are you alienating anybody by doing this? Zero, mm -hmm. and I love that both from Simon and Schuster and from my agent because if if something doesn't work, it's all on me. I can't mm -hmm. say. I knew it. I should have not listened to that. You know, there's none of that. It's all on me. And I love that part of it. Uh, whereas screenwriting on the other side of it, very collaborative. Uh, yeah. You have a writer's room. It goes up to the top of Amazon. Notes come back down. Very collaborative yeah. process. But uh, but I love that this is just me and there's only one person to blame. Yeah. And that's myself. Hey, if that it is like the seal if it doesn't work out. mantra. That's like a seal way of life. Yeah. Last question on process. The DOD has redacted pieces of your yes. books in the past. Is that still happening? Do you still submit every, every manuscript out to the DOD? Dep I should probably Department not. Defense. comment but um i did for the first three uh <laughs> the first three and the yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the first one i thought well i'm pretty I, I started writing it during my last year and a half in the military when my job yeah. became to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy so it's called dropping your papers and so i dropped my papers let them know hey i'm not i'm 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 on my way out this was a good 20-year run but time to go and uh that's really because it was the last my last deployment to iraq was the last time that i would tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield uh if i came back i'd go well i'd go to a staff job which i would absolutely hate uh, and then eventually i'd come back as a commanding officer which sounds uh impressive but really in today's military a commanding officer is back in a tactical operations center allocating assets managing yes you're leading but you're not out there and the guys don't want you out there you've been away now for four years at staff jobs different places doing powerpoints they don't want you on the battlefield with them kicking in a door because you're going to mm -hmm. mess it up you haven't been mm -hmm. solely devoted to that task that mission um so i knew that that's what i came in to do is the tactical level leadership yeah. and now it's time to get out and my family needed me our middle child has really severe special needs and needs a 24 7 full-time care forever and uh so that was my mission making sure he's taken care of mm -hmm. passion was writing this is my purpose going forward so i was lucky that i knew exactly what i wanted to do so um but uh it was time i knew it was time to get out and that's when the readers first meet james reese he's in that same position he's yeah. finishing up his or he's going to finish up but something happens to him in afghanistan in the book uh and that's the last time that he's going to tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield as well and then of mm -hmm. course his life is thrown into turmoil with his conspiracy and everything else but i started writing it during this last year and a half and uh you have to go to medical and dental and get read out of secret programs and turn in gear and make appointments for all those things and because it's the military you stand in line to do those things as well so yeah. and you go in a different pile and all of a sudden you're off the track that you were on and you have a little more time so started writing so i figured it would be uh prudent to submit this thing my character has a background very similar to mine so i wanted to mm -hmm. cover my bases and do the right thing so i submitted it to the office of pre-publication and security review at the pentagon who <laughs> say that they will get it back to you in 30 days and so i submitted it and at, by the time i submitted it i didn't have a publisher or anything else uh so i submitted it really and uh they got back to me in 45 days which i thought was pretty hey, good that's not 50 percent over that's not, not bad. bad not bad yeah. uh, and they took out i think nine maybe ten different sentences or words or things like that all yeah ridiculous but anyway that uh, fine uh so the second one true believer i submitted that as well and that one month passes 
two months, three months, four months, five months, six months. Did you feel like you had pushed the boundaries seven. more with that one in terms of what was in there? No, not at no. all. I don't know what, yeah. what changed, but uh, it took a lot. Maybe they were getting more input from other authors or yeah. something like that. But anyway, it took so long. This so is all stuff that would go to methods of combat like that, that they were worried about or no. that's the idea they were supposed to redact things that go to methods I, yeah, sources and methods the cia would say um but uh you know it's pretty ridiculous what they take out it's all very obvious if you just and i so i, I just redacted it in the text and i don't think i'd seen nonfiction books do that before i'd mm-hmm. never seen it in a work of fiction so i just kept the redactions in there which also makes it very easy sort to figure out what up. it is yeah. Yeah. by context <laughs> uh, it's kind of like if you don't really know what a word is or no yeah. uh, you know historical event but it's in there you can figure it out kind of by context of the the sentence of the paragraph of the yeah. chapter. Um, so I just left him, left him in there. Uh, so submitted that second one. They took out 54, I want to say 54 things. So a lot more than the first one for some reason. But now I have attorneys at this point. So now I have them tie each and every one of those redactions to a publicly available government document. So not something that's out there on Wikipedia or that's out there in someone else's book or anything mm-hmm. like that, but things that anyone anywhere in the world can get from our own government, from yeah. our government websites yeah, out like there. You're so already tied, putting this out there. Exactly. Yeah. So I tied each each and every one of those, or the attorneys tied each and every one of those to a publicly available government document. You can appeal. You have a certain amount of time. You can appeal these things. So mm-hmm. they submitted it during the correct time, sent it in, and we won on 37 of those 54. So what I did was in the paperback, I unredacted those things. So people can mm-hmm. compare the hardcover to the paperback and see what the government was so worried about. Yeah. One being a location in Morocco. And for me, I'd been to Morocco before my time in the military. I remembered being in Marrakesh. I remember the sights and the sounds and the smells. And I really loved it. I really connected with Morocco for some reason. And it made sense for my character to go there geographically because of the storyline. Mm-hmm. And uh, the government took out any, because uh, I, I put a CIA black site in Morocco. I just made it up. I was never mm-hmm. there in my time in uniform, never connect, connected to anyone else who had been to Morocco as part of their time in uniform or part of their time in an intelligence service or anything. But I put mm-hmm. a CIA black site there and they took out every mention of Morocco, uh, Atlas Mountains, Moorish architecture. Uh, and then I ended up winning that on appeal. So I unredacted it. And so now people can understand, see, oh, what, what, there must be, what does it tell you? It tells you that there probably is some sort of a CIA site in Morocco. <laughs> right, right. But if they hadn't done that, right. So now it's then, exactly. So now it's, it's so, uh, so they basically put like, a big red circle around the whole sorry. thing. It's not a nice so thing funny. to say. It's not a nice thing to say. <laughs> um, I take it back. Let's edit it. But uh, so so I unredacted. So then I did the same thing with the third novel. Yeah. And yeah. did the same thing. Had some now they're alone. Tough, they're like well, this guy's. He's like he's gotten too big. Well, they, uh, <laughs> we, we can't take him I, on I anymore. I tied them to publicly available government documents again. Their redactions in that third one. But then they said they wouldn't let me appeal, even though it was submitted well ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, and I took that as them telling me, hey, kid, we have some serious nonfiction stuff to deal with here. Uh, yeah. Quit bothering us with your fiction. So so I don't do it going forward. And plus, there's been enough time, I think, that has elapsed in these last few books. I haven't uh, any of the research that I've done has been yeah. post-military. So for the yeah. devil's hand, it was all into bioweapons research or what they call biodefense research to get around certain conventions that we signed on to in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went deep down the rabbit hole on that. And for the last one, I went deep down the rabbit hole on quantum on computing and artificial yeah. intelligence uh, from the intelligence and military side of the house. But it was all through interviews. It was like investigative journalism. Uh, all stuff that I learned post-military, which they cannot redact if you learn something that's not attached to your time to your, in to uniform. Your, yeah, exactly. Um, but I didn't want to give them the opportunity either. So, uh, And plus, you can't stay on the one-year timeline if you're, if you're taking seven, eight months with these things. Crazy, so. yeah. So, yeah, so 30 days, that's so I no longer. Anymore, uh... And they're probably on the way here right now. But, uh, <laughs> so, so, thanks. thanks, guys. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the other thing you include in your books a lot is cinema and, you know, art that you and I grew up on. And so I, as I was reading Only the Dead, there were two examples I wanted to, to mention to you. You're very gracious in, in acknowledging your influences, whether it's Ludlum mm-hmm. or people, you know, present day, like Brad yeah. Thor, for yeah. example. But yeah, Vince Flynn, huge one. Vince uh, Flynn, great. Yeah. Um, Term Limits was a, oh my gosh, Term Limits is a fascinating, that's the, ironically, that's not the, it's only non-Mitch Rapp book, yeah. uh, is Term Limits, but uh, yeah. So as I was reading uh, Only the Dead, I came across a couple lines that I just wanted to run by here. One was that I, that I think I may have recognized from some cinema that I love. One was the character says, I'm going to fucking kill the both of you. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, there's Martin Riggs. Nice, there it right? is. Lethal Weapon. And then nice. like a couple paragraphs Don't give all these down. away. Don't give all these away. Well, this well, just one more, <laughs> which won't give away too much <laughs> no, of the plot, no. but No Way You Live. That's I'm like, it. well, there's Roger Murtaugh. Yeah, there, right? I had to do throw a little in there. So the, okay, good. Uh, from the show, I had a cameo in the, the Terminal List, and it's in episode three in the beginning. I play an assassin that gets in a gunfight with Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a first he backs his Land Cruiser, which is very similar to my Land Cruiser and actually is my Land Cruiser now because I got the one from the set but uh little car crash and gets out and then there's a a gunfight and i wanted to do the car crash because i'm the guy i'm the assassin in the the trail vehicle here and he hits it gets out and we have the gunfight Uh, but they wouldn't let me do it and after i saw it i was uh, glad that they didn't let me do it because it actually in real life looked a lot worse than it it looked on film it looked like Mm -hmm. kind of a fender bender on film and i thought it was going to be a fender bender but the person who doubled me in there doubled uh martin riggs um as he's handcuffed to somebody uh, yeah. as he and the first lethal weapon when he jumps off jumps off the building, building under the under the uh-huh. puffy uh-huh. thing Nick right? Rogers and yeah. he's a famous uh, legendary Hollywood stuntman so he got to double me and uh, and then I got to talk to him and get a picture with him and oh talk to God. him about that experience and it's um, like a boy's dream come true like, you know, yeah, I, I, he's doubled Mel Gibson in a bunch of different uh, different films but um, but to know that he's the guy that did that that I was watching as a kid oh and my God so, that's crazy uh, so anyway I put uh, put a couple lethal weapon lines in there as a little yeah. little yeah. nod to 
I love that. Like it's a little nod to the mm-hmm. stuff that we that we love. Yeah. There's another one. This is a little bit more serious that I wanted to ask you about. First Blood, mm-hmm. David Morrell, the the book and the mm-hmm. movie with Stallone and and Rambo. So I had our kids watch our, our we have a 13 year old okay. and we watched it and it was interesting to me to watch it with them because at that age and even like much older they view it as like a stallone shoot 'em up mm-hmm. action film and they don't really have the historical context of how culturally significant mm-hmm. that book and mm-hmm. those films were because at that time you know as as you and i know and anyone our age knows are those those films and that, that whole franchise in the book did a lot to sway public opinion to bring people around around their the public sentiment for returning combat veterans from from in this case Vietnam and how you know really sort of grotesque the nation's reception of people mm-hmm. coming back from overseas from those was like you know protests and spitting in faces and things like that it was just crazy and and those films actually started to turn things and and raise the level of respect for veterans yeah. and our understanding of what that job really entails. And I wanted to ask you, because in the context of the present day, I had James Patterson on this show a couple months ago, and he has a book out called Walk the Blue Line. Mm. And it, I don't know if you know this book, but it's basically a bunch of stories from cops yeah. about sort of a day in the life. They, they each tell a story, right. and it's a way for readers to connect directly with police mm-hmm to understand better what that job really entails. Like, what's it like on the job? And he and I, James and I talked a little bit about this on the show, but not, not much. And I, and I actually wanted to ask you about it because I feel like we've come a long way with military and our, our servicemen and women coming mm-hmm. back from overseas from these things, from where we were after Vietnam in the seventies to where we are present day, where it's just, it's come a long way. Like people yeah. kind of get it, but law enforcement today the public sentiment is kind of where we were 50 years ago in the 70s with the military. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, for for a segment, I would say. I would say I think there's still a segment of uh, of society that still respects law enforcement and what they do uh, to put themselves on that line every single day for us. When you even if you just pull somebody over, you never know what you're walking up on. You never right. know you get that call for a domestic dispute. You never know what you're walking into. That's an unknown. And you a lot of these places you're you are alone as you walk up to that house. Maybe you have a partner with you. Maybe another sh- car shows up. So there's two. Now mm-hmm. you have no idea what you're walking into. Um, so there is uh, there's definitely a correlation there, I think. But it all goes back to to respect. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think in the military side of the house, specifically because of Vietnam, people today can make that uh, differentiation between the person who signs up to serve their country and what's being asked of them by their elected representatives mm-hmm. um, and and them going downrange and doing this job. In Vietnam, there wasn't really that distinction. They were mm-hmm. all lumped together, and Vietnam was that person who went there. Uh, and when you came home, that's who you could take your anger out on. Mm-hmm. Very different post-September 11th, even though it was a 20-year conflict that we were engaged in. When people came back, I think those lessons of Vietnam, those people who did treat veterans in that way and those veterans who experienced that, um, well, now, all these years later, I think both have learned from from what happened and so it's a different coming home experience for this generation um even if you're against the wars in iraq and afghanistan and you ask questions which we should be asking questions about these things um but for law enforcement it's tough it's tough and i on my book signings i had one here in new jersey yesterday and it was amazing ton of people and i think every other person probably more than every other person was a new york cop or a firefighter Mm. and it was so cool to have those guys come through and uh just just amazing and the ones that 
that were um, of kind of our age, I would ask where they were on on September 11th. And mm -hmm. uh, some of them were a, a day into their job. Some of them were a year into their job as a cop. And uh, and so I got to, to ask them about that. But, um, you know, I think there's there's lessons to be learned from that military side coming back from Vietnam and the police officer who gets into that vehicle yeah. and goes out uh, with good intentions every day to, to hold the line. And, uh, and I, I would hope that maybe a segment that is quote unquote against law enforcement can uh, may not take it out on the can, police can officer. They're putting their lives on the line. Yeah. So we're a little tight on time, but I want to, I want to raise one thing before we get into the lightning round, which is it, it is amazing to see how well so many former SEALs are thriving around out there. You're crushing it. Back at home, we uh, we give our kids these protein shakes. So we have the ah, Jocko milk. Willink, yeah, we have the the Jocko Willink nice. uh, protein powder, and nice. our youngest is reading a children's book by Jocko. The Way of the Warrior Kid. Yes. I mean, that, that guy, by the way, he's like he's so fierce-looking. Like, the oh. brow and the jaw and the shaved head. Yeah, I'm we're thinking, friends, and I'm intimidated crap. by like him every time he talks totally, to me. Yeah. Like, like if I had you over for dinner, I'd be like, "Honey, hey, you know this is this is Jack. Like he yeah. sells insurance. Like I could I sure. could make that believable. Like yeah, he's, yeah. he's kind of a badass, but you know he's a <laughs> Jocko. Is like there's no convincing anyone of that. Oh, that no. guy is you know like exactly what he did without knowing anything about his oh, background. Um, but it's such an amazing guy, and he's so cool. He reads a part of the books uh, mm -hmm. in that voice every time yeah. now, and uh, he's done with the last three books. And this one, he reads a letter from James Reese's dad, Tom Reese, Vietnam, uh, and he Jocko reads it with that black and white video. Yeah, and so yeah. he's done that the last few times, and I'm sincerely. Uh, grateful so to we, for that. we've shown a couple of his videos to our kids and he you know one of the things that he says is like a warrior doesn't lose his cool doesn't lose his temper he stays focused and like my my wife is she's so smart and she's much more like you and Jocko like if mm. some if some BS happens she's like noted got it and when the time is right, I am going to come for you, and I'm going to take you down. She Whereas I'm like, I'm on the other hand, I'm like, I lose my mind. I'm got, I'm like, we're going to kill him yeah, right now. Really? You know, her way is so much more effective. You know, like your way your time, is so much more effective. Think it through. Um, stay composed. Stay composed. Mm -hmm. Was that is that composure something you've always had, or is that? Like some and got you through SEAL training, or is it something you acquired? I don't think so. I think it was just always there from the reading, yeah. probably, um, yeah. and uh, knowing the importance of history and studying issues before making a snap judgment to avoid being manipulated by uh, by other entities, perhaps. Um, but I think it's just always been a, a part. Try to remain as calm as possible. Well, that's not and the answer. So I was hoping it can be acquired because I need to acquire it. So well, let's go. We go. We can always go back to uh, <laughs> to Patrick Swayze in the uh, the classic Roadhouse. Of course, you'll be nice until it's time to not be nice. It's be nice. So it's uh, it's good. That's why is it. Sage advice, I would say. Sage advice. That's good. The Sam Elliott. That's a classic. Everyone's, oh, so great. Uh, They're remaking I, it. Do you know that? They're, no. they're remaking it. Yeah. Starring who? I think Jake Gyllenhaal, I think. I believe. I'm as not, Swayze. As, uh, yes. Yes. Right. As, uh, as Dalton. Be nice yeah. until it's time not to be nice. All right. The lightning mm -hmm. round. We got we to. The lightning round. All right. So favorite book as a kid. Ooh, gosh, that is, uh, there are so many. I'm going to go, I'm going to have to go a few. I'm going to have to go Brotherhood of the Rose um, by David Morrell. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to have to go Last of the Breed uh, by Louis L'Amour. Uh, I'm going to have to go First Blood. Uh, I'm going to have to go Last of the Breed. I'm going to have to go Charm School. Um, I think that, I can't just do just one. Yeah, it's not good. just, not just one. But in this thriller genre, anyway, that. That group, Charm School, by the right way, it's just like the Demille Charm School. I love our right, book. Incredible. Book or you're you're on this crazy whirlwind tour right now. But if there is anything now on the nightstand, book or books you're reading now? I am reading books about the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing, which there are not many, um, and there's not even the seminal documentary. There's not even mm -hmm. the seminal book because I'm doing a, my first nonfiction comes out in a year and a half, oh, and nice. it's on the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. And there's been some recently declassified documents from the Reagan White House that yeah. uh, shed some light on the uh, the, the internal discussion 
discussions on whether to put Marines ashore in Beirut, whether to keep them on ships in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, and uh, then the aftermath of that event and how that was dealt with at a political level right there. Um, so I'm reading books on that right now. Beirut, that time frame right there. And that comes out in a year and a half under my new targeted series, which That's is going to focus on a different to, I can't wait to uh, read some nonfiction event. by you. Mm-hmm. All right. So in your professional opinion, Alien v. Predator, who wins? I got to go Predator. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's uh, the tech that, that was just uh, well, it was just, you know, Arnold's in it, of course, in the first <laughs> one, uh, even though he's not the predator, of course. But uh, that was just such a, a mo- just such a yeah. uh, kind of a landmark film from that uh, decade. It's I, just, love so, that. I love it. I love it. So I'm going to have to. I mean, as was Alien, you know, but Aliens are a little a little earlier. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I got to go with Predator, but not because I'm I'm looking at who has better tactics and skills and all that sort of thing. But I'm just going to go because Arnold was in the first one. You know, oh, Arnold. Well, you know, can't, I, the governor. He, he, what could you do? So, uh, same question. Jocko Willink, your I'm gonna go your, with Jocko. your pal over I'm go Connor with McGregor. I, you know, I'm gonna go. Always gonna go with the. Uh, and you're, you're probably thinking just like in an octagon, but in general yeah. in life, you know, I don't know. I'm a big fan of uh, of Conor McGregor as well, but uh, I got to go with my seal buddy on that one. Jocko takes. Know. Well, I mean, if you throw in like hatchets and knives and rifles, like yeah, if you're talking Connor in general, doesn't stand a, yeah, a if chance. You're in general, and you're not. Uh, and there's there are even rules. even in the octagon though, you there take Jocko rules. over Conor McGregor. If we're just talking in the octagon, I'm still gonna have to go with Jocko just because I, I know him. I'm gonna see him probably soon, <laughs> and I'm I'm scared I'm scared of him as well. well. I think he's even probably given away a few years. He was probably a little. Older, but he's got some pounds on Connor too. So yeah, he got got some pounds, and uh, and he's thought this stuff through. Well, so is Connor. You know, but I'm gonna go with Jocko just because I'm still scared of him. All right, well, look, look, I, you know, I'm not even touching <laughs> any of that. Three best war slash combat movies ever made. Uh, One, of, two, or three, whatever comes to mind. I think Brand of Brothers. Is, I mean, it's not a movie; it's a series, obviously. Yeah. But uh, Brand of Brothers from really. Uh, really comes out to me as uh, uh stands out to me anyway mm-hmm. as uh, kind of a, a seminal series when it comes to war films um but uh if you're thinking about modern combat for whatever reason black hawk down yeah, uh, yeah. F- actually and the guy in that oh my god i'm blanking on the name but he was the co-author with james patterson of the walk the blue line book oh yeah, yeah that's right matt. that's right um uh, matt uh, eversman matt eversman yeah. yeah thank you uh so so yeah so i, I think that, that one stands yeah. out uh as far as modern combat goes but the one that's even more recent than that is 13 hours and i've seen mm-hmm. a lot of these films obviously growing up and then today yeah. as well and none of them have ever made me want to get back in uniform or back yeah. in the fight. Uh, I had a good run while I was in, and I know that it was time to move on, and I, I listened to that. Um, but that one, for whatever reason, for a second, is a second, made me want to get back in the fight. Mm. Uh, and I don't know why that is. They just did a good job portraying what that life is like in that uh, kind of CIA paramilitary yeah. Yeah. side of the house when you're a little bit uh, left out there. Uh, so that one was the one that uh, that stands out to me as far as a modern type of All right. The food... While you were deployed, the food that you from back home that you craved Ooh. the most, uh, I have to say, a nice steak or taco. Actually, not not a nice steak, tacos. Because I had some good, I had a good steak down range. When I was with the CIA. <laughs> the CIA had this uh, had a great chef at this one this one de- one deployment, and I was attached to them as part of this covert action unit. The only military guy attached to it, and uh, their chef uh, made this steak. And I think it was like a Chicago specialty things where it was stuffed yeah. with like blue cheese or something. Oh my Have you gosh. heard of this? Uh, and whatever reason, it was delicious. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It blue was incredible. cheese stuffed steak? Yeah. Like he sliced it, I think, and stuffed it in. And someone will correct us, of course. Um, but I might, <laughs> uh, and I might have this totally wrong, but I think that he told me that it was an old Chicago type of a thing. I'm not talking. Uh. But anyway, I think in my mind is So tacos. But if you're yeah, over there, I, it was like yeah, tacos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. The best compliment you've ever received at a book event? 
Oh, you know, it's not a compliment. It's uh, this time more than the other events, people have come up and said that uh, the books have, and the podcast have influenced them in a way that has, I mean, has kept them going. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason they saw, I said something or, you know, you don't think of this when you're doing them, you're having these conversations, um, but you don't realize how it's going to affect certain people. And so for someone to take time out of their day to drive hours so that they can stand in line and so they can just tell you that, um, is pretty impactful. Um, and I didn't really know how to, you know, how to, how to I mean, I just feel humbled by that, but, uh, and thankful, you know, that that uh, the, the books or something I said on the podcast or had a guest say on the podcast or whatever it might be has uh, impacted somebody in a way that has uh, kept them moving forward and given them mm -hmm. uh, a reason to keep on going. So, so that, yeah, that was pretty powerful. Well, that's cool. You're you know. such a humble guy, clearly. And uh, that's, that's, that's awesome to hear. Typical of the seal brotherhood. All right. So last, last question yes. for, for Jack Carr, one piece of advice for our listeners. Yeah, so it's uh, it's something I pass on to my kids and something I think about, and it's to never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day, and uh, not with a, and that's the reason the whole series came to be is because uh, my friend Jared Shaw, um, he was getting out of the military, and I found out he was getting out of the military, and he was a, he had a great reputation in the teams, and so it was when I was the operations officer at Buds during my last couple of years in, which is our SEAL training program, and he was an instructor, and uh, I asked him to come into the office and talk to, to me, tell me you know what he was thinking about as far as what he was going to do when he got out. And uh, apparently I helped him out and barely, I don't had him tell me this later because I didn't even remember it, but uh, I helped him out and introduced him to people in the private sector and then followed up. And then five years later, I hadn't talked to him in five years. He calls me and uh, asks if I remember him. And I say, yes, of course I remember you, Jared. And he said, you remember what you did for me in the SEAL teams? And I did not. And he mm. told me what I did. And, and uh, he said, you're the only one that did that ever. Because sometimes you go into this other pile and you don't, we're not staying in. Then you're just kind of pushed to the side. And uh, and he said, I'm the only person that, uh, that took the time to, to talk to him and introduce him to people and then follow up. And he said he never forgot it. And he always wanted to thank me. And I said, you know, no problem. How's it going? And he said, it's going great. But I heard you wrote a book. And I said, yeah, I got this book coming out here in a few months, and I have a galley copy, and I found out what a galley was just a couple weeks right. earlier, <laughs> uh, which is a rough draft kind of thing for those that it goes out to uh, reviewers ahead of time. And uh, I said, I can send you one. And he said, yeah, I'd like to read it, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I said, no problem. Who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. And I was like, oh. Well, that's awfully convenient for me because uh, that's who I actually want to play this character. So he gave it to Chris. Chris, had you already it. thought of Chris Pratt? I thought of him from the very beginning. That's amazing. Yeah, before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Jurassic before, World. What was he in before all, Guardians of the Galaxy? He was in Parks and Rec, where he was a little bit overweight and kind of uh -huh. jovial and fun, and he had a very small small role in Zero Dark Thirty as a seal. So I saw him transform oh from gosh. his character on wow. Parks and Rec to this seal. And of course, as a child of the 80s, I'm starting to write this thing. And I'm like, well, it makes sense to choose my actor and my director. Right. So yeah. I had my Chris Pratt. And I thought Antoine Fuqua, that's that I love his work. And I but I had no connections in Hollywood, no connections in publishing. And I chose Emily Bessler at Simon and Schuster as my editor, because I went to the back of Brad Thor's books and Vince Flynn's books. And they thanked right. this person named right. Emily Bessler. Oh so I picked her as my as my publisher editor. Um, you were but, just making uh, it happen. You're like picking it and making it happen. It's that's uh, pretty wild, but it's, it goes back to that never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. But it does, it's does not even because you think it's going to come back around. It's just because yeah. it's a nice thing to to do. So I, it, so well, I think that's But the if advice. you live your life that way, it does somehow. Yeah, sometimes, it does. sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes but, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> that's not why you should uh, you should do it. But um, but I try to talk to the kids about that. Never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. So uh, I think that's uh, that's not bad advice. That's great. Jack, you are awesome. This awesome. was so great. Thank so you much so fun. much. Thank you. Let's great. go finish this bottle. Yes. Take care. <laughs> 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.